The following message was recorded at New Beginnings Church in Slidell, Louisiana. Please feel free to duplicate and share this message as you feel led. And you are invited to visit us at New Beginnings Church at 330 Robert Boulevard, Slidell, Louisiana, 70458. Our Sunday services start at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. If you have any questions, call us at 985-781-4663. And may God richly bless you as you listen to this message. Good morning. This Saturday morning, uh, so good to see you. Um, let's just pray briefly and we'll jump right into it. Lord, we just thank you. Thank you, as Morris said, that you're here with us. Even until the end of the world and beyond. Lord, I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would open our minds to understand the scriptures this morning. I pray that the Spirit of God would give insight and revelation of what the scripture is really saying. Who can know the thoughts of God but the Spirit of God? And He, the Spirit, has been given to us that we might know the things that are freely given to us in Christ. So, Lord, we pray by the power of your Spirit, we rely not on our own intellect, we lean not to our own understanding, but we trust and we depend on the Spirit of God to speak to us the thoughts of God. For who can know the thoughts of God but the Spirit of God? Thank you, Father, that you are so eager, eager to show us the things that are freely given to us in Christ. He who spared not his only son, will he not with him freely give us all things? Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. In the past, on a, on a Saturday, we've had like questions and answers and that kind of thing. But I feel like this morning, what I'd like to do, instead of taking questions and, and that kind of thing, I'd like to take five scriptures um, and talk about those five different scriptures that have been stumbling blocks to believers in grasping the grace of God, the finished work of Christ. Um, the enemy has a has a tactic. Paul says we're not ignorant of the enemy's devices or strategies. And one of his strategies, um, because he's, you know, the enemy is very religious, very religious. He, he, he quoted scripture to Jesus trying to tempt Jesus. He's very religious. One of the things the enemy does is that he will take scripture and, and interpret scripture wrongly and then that scripture is in your mind interpreted wrongly and it becomes a stronghold. The word of God can actually be a stronghold and it's, it's a powerful stronghold because it is the word of God. The scripture not properly understood can be a stronghold in your mind. 
It's, it's, it's one of his, his ways of, of blocking truth by misinterpreting Scripture and you and I thinking, well, that's got to be, you know, that, that's the truth. It's the Word of God. I can't go against the Word of God. And that's exactly where he wants you. As opposed to seeing what the Scripture is really saying. Jesus said of the Pharisees, by their tradition, they have made void the Word of God. By their tradition, they have misinterpreted Scripture and made void the power that is hidden in those Scriptures. So it's really important that we take a look at these Scriptures that we, maybe all our lives, we thought it meant this thing, but it actually means this thing, another thing. And that's why I prayed initially to rely on the Spirit because you can't rely on your own understanding. You have to rely on the Spirit to open the Scripture up. And search these scriptures to see if these things be so. Because some of these things have been entrenched in us, in our minds for centuries. In the church history, some of these things that, are, that we, we think, oh yeah, of course, that's, that's what that says. When it doesn't say that at all. And it's really powerful because what happens, you'll hear the revelation of the finished work of Christ. You'll receive it. And you'll have this joy come up in you and you'll be like, oh, my God, this is so awesome. This is so good. This is too good to be true. And, and then somebody will say, well, what about First John 1, 9? You know, it says you've got to confess your sins. If you don't confess your sins every day, then you're not forgiven. You've got to name your sins and get cleansed. And, and then there's this damper, this wet towel is thrown over the joy. And you go like, yeah, what about First John 1, 9? So we're going to talk about First John 1, 9 first. Because 1 John 1, 9 is one of those verses that has been used by the enemy, misinterpreted, and has been used by the enemy to keep the believer in a sin consciousness as opposed to a Christ consciousness. So let's take a look at that first. This is what I want to look at. I want to look at um, 1 John 1, 9, which has to do with the whole issue of sin has our sin been covered or has it been taken away? See, that's, that's the issue really about 1 John 1, 9. Has it been covered or has it been taken away? Hebrews talks about that, how one of the old covenant sins were covered. Well, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, but the blood of Christ took away our sin. So we're going we're to talk about 1 John 1, 9. The second thing I want to talk about is the... The story of Ananias and Sapphira. I don't know if that comes up in your thinking, but sometimes people will say, wait, 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 what about Ananias and Sapphira? I mean, they, they lied to the Holy Spirit and God struck them dead. I mean, we, we believers better be careful about sinning because judgment will fall on us. I mean, Ananias and Sapphira. We're going to talk about that. Second, third scripture we're going to talk about is the Lord's Supper. There's teaching out there in the Lord's Supper. And don't get worried. I'm not going to be here five hours. But I'm going to be, this is going to be rapid fire. I'm going to hit these, make you thirsty, make you hungry. So you can search more yourself and search into it. But I'm going to hit them hard and fast. So I think it'll be interesting. And I think you'll love it. But um, it, there's a, each one of these could be a series, really. But I'm going to hit them so you can just see the big picture. And then from then, you know, you won't be able to put the scripture down until you get the your own answer when you see it yourself. It's, it, it'll be cool. Okay, so the third thing I want to talk about is the Lord's Supper. It's, it's commonly taught, and not in this church, but it's commonly taught that before you eat the bread and drink the wine, 
that you are to examine yourself for sin and make sure all your sins are confessed up to date and repented of and so forth before you eat the bread and drink the wine because if you do with unconfessed sin, you could be judged by eating unworthily. How many people have that in their thinking? Widespread, the body of Christ. It's not true. Fourth thing we want to talk about is Peter saying this. Peter says in his letter, judgment must begin at the house of God. Well, I've heard that preached. Putting saints under fear that, you know, judgment must begin at the house of God. So you better get your act together because judgment begins at the house of God. God's going to clean house. And judgment begins at the house of God. Oh, God. How many saints have been put under bondage? Because they don't even know what Peter's saying there. What he's saying there is awesome. It'll make you shout. And the fifth thing I want to talk about is this whole thing about, this is not really a scripture. There's, there's hundreds of scriptures on this topic, but I want to just touch on the whole issue of being free from the law. We're, it's commonly taught that, yes, we're free from the ceremonial law. We're free from having to be go to Jerusalem with bulls and goats. We're free from that, but we're not free from the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Oh, no, 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 not the Ten Commandments. You're still under the Ten Commandments as a Christian, but you're free from the other laws, but not the Ten Commandments. Not true. Not true. We'll talk about that. Is that cool? Yeah. Now, how many of those five things did, did at least one of those five things is in your just raise your hand if at least one of those five things is in your mind and you want to get a better answer. How many have all five? <laughs> you see what's happening? You see what the enemy's done? So that when the, when the proclamation of the, of the work of Christ goes forth, you have these stumbling blocks. You have these walls up in your mind. And so you, you don't just open up and release Receive, receive from him and then release him like a river. Scripture says, he who has received this abundant grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Christ Jesus. So when these stumbling blocks are moved out of the way and we really understand what the scripture is saying, we, we, we will be better receivers and better givers. As we receive, and he flows, his life flows through us. We cannot give of what we have. We cannot give what we don't have. We have to all receive, always receive from him, and then we have to give, because it's all him. As Paul says, I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. The life I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ lives through me, lives through us. As we receive what he did, we release his life by faith in a simplicity that's powerful, very powerful. Awesome. Okay, let's jump into it. I need a little help here. Can someone uh, just watch the clock? And when I have gone 10 minutes... On one of the questions, just wave your hand or something, because I want to move through there, move here pretty fast, so we don't go too long. And and because um, it really is, every one of these could be a five tape series. You guys ready? 
All right, cool. Let's go. All right, let's go. First John 1, 9 first. And I do believe this is, this is the, uh, the linchpin. That's what my pastor says, Pastor Clark Witten at Grace Church in Orlando. That's what Pastor Clark says. Uh, he, says this is the, he says, this is the linchpin of it all, and he's right. I remember when uh, I first heard him years ago, I think it was 1995, something like that, I heard a, a tape by, by Clark Whitten. He would, he'd come through Orlando. He was pastoring a church in Oklahoma. And he was teaching that 1 John 1, 9 was, was not for the believer and um, that it's, that's a reference, it's a reference to an unbeliever, uh, not a believer. And, and, and I'd already been, been preaching that, teaching that, and I was like, I hadn't heard anyone say that. So I called him up in Oklahoma and I said, uh, you don't know me, but I just got your tape. And, um, <laughs> and uh, I said, uh, you know, it's a stupid question. He laughed about it. He laughs about it now. I, I, I said, do you really believe what you're saying there? Do you believe? Do you believe it? I was just, you know, I was just like, do you really believe? You believe that? He, goes, he laughed. He goes, yeah, I really believe it. I said, that's awesome. I said, uh, I said, no one's saying that. That's awesome. That's right on. I said, uh, we're doing this little outdoor thing at our church. Uh, at the time, was, we were doing, we were pastoring a church. My wife and I were doing a church called Tree of Life Fellowship. And about 120 members or so, but small little fellowship, but we were doing this out, outdoor thing at Lake Eola and um, an outreach kind of thing to proclaim the gospel and worship. And, and um, so I asked, I said, would you come down? We're a small church, but would you consider coming down and speaking at our outdoor conference? We'd love to have you speak. And he said, sure, I'll do it. And um, turns out later he was asked to pastor one of the largest churches in Orlando. Uh, this, is after, this is a year or so after Calvary Assembly. And he said... Um, and then I thought, well, he's probably going to cancel us because, you know, we're just a little fellowship and he's got a lot of work to do now. He's got this big church he's in charge of and stuff. And so I called him back and said, you know, if you have to cancel, we understand totally. He goes, no, 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 I'll be there. So anyway, it was so cool to hear him. He came and he proclaimed. And now he's, he's founded this, this new church, Grace Church. It's awesome, awesome. Uh, website is graceorlando.com, graceorlando.com. Um, and... Um, He's traveling around different churches, preaching to churches, 10,000 member churches, every, different places all over the country, proclaiming this truth of the finished work of Christ. So I just wanted to, I don't even know why I said all that, but that's just to encourage you to know you're not alone, that his book is going to be coming out pretty soon. The book is going to be awesome. I think it's going to come out in the spring of 2012, and um, he is in high demand from pastors who want to understand this grace and understand and, and re-look at all these scriptures again and see what they're really saying. So it's awesome. It's really, we're living in a very powerful time, a very powerful time in church history. Um, and we're in, the, we're in the middle of it. We're right in the middle of it. It's awesome. It's exciting to be part of it. Okay. First John 1, 9. Yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> We'll start over uh, on, the, on the time clock there. Okay, cool. All right, here we go. 1 John 1.9. Um, as you know, let's read it first. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is commonly taught in the church as a verse to the believer that it's what one pastor I heard say once when he was teaching it. He said, it's the bar of soap for the Christian. It's the bar of soap. It's, the way, it's, what, it's what we use to cleanse ourselves as a believer when we sin, when we stumble, when we fall. We have to confess those sins, name those sins, put them under the blood, so to speak, believe that God has cleansed them, and go on and move on. But the next time you sin, you've got to do the same thing again because those sins are being held against you until you confess them, get them cleansed, and move on again. There's so many problems with this, if you think it through. First of all, if you're going to play by that rule, you can't, con- you can't just say you have to confess the big ones, the big sins. You have to confess everything. So, first of all, it's not, a, it's not even a workable doctrine, if you think about it. If you're saying that God is counting your sins against you as a Christian, and that he's out of fellowship with you, that's how it goes. You're out of fellowship until you confess that sin, get cleansed, get back in fellowship. If, if that's the case, then you, you can't just confess the biggies. I mean, you have to confess I mean, you're, you're out of fellowship every time you sin. And, and you're in need of cleansing every time you sin under that doctrine. Every time the speed limit says 50 and you drive 51 miles an hour, you have sinned. It's not perfection. You have violated a law of man. You have not submitted yourself to the law of man for the Lord's sake. You have sinned. Have you confessed that sin? Every time you think An evil thought. Have you confessed that sin? Every time your words are harsh and cruel or mean to somebody, maybe just a slight little loss of temper, have you confessed that sin? How about the sins of omission, not just commission? Not what you did and what you didn't do, what you should have done, what you could have done. I mean, sin is all-encompassing. It's it's, the, it's, it's your thoughts, it's your words, it's your deeds. You're going to play by that rule, then you are never going to have fellowship with God. Probably. And you'll be so focused on your sin, and after a while you just get weary, and then you, just, you end up you know, doing the late night general all-inclusive confession. If I forgot anything, forgive me. And you have like 30 seconds of fellowship before you fall asleep. It's ridiculous. Sin is anything that is not perfection. Sin means to miss the mark. So anytime you are not thinking perfectly like God would think, speaking perfectly as if God would speak, acting perfectly as if God would act, you have sinned. I have sinned. I am missing the mark. So if you're going to play by that rule of confession of sin for cleansing, for continual fellowship with God, good luck. It's not workable. It's not, they didn't even have that kind of a standard, that kind of a burden under the old covenant. They didn't even have that under the old covenant. The old covenant, they had certain big sins. They would take certain sacrifices to the temple for. 
And then once a year on the Day of Atonement, they'd have one big sacrifice. The high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement. And the scripture says that even sins that they didn't even realize they committed would be taken care of. And the whole nation would be cleansed once a year. I, I like that better. <laughs> I mean, then you've got, you know, you're, you're done. You, the whole nation. And yet the, the new covenant is supposed to be built on better promises. What, what's going on here? What, what is this? I'll tell you something else. This verse, 1 John 1, 9, it's the only verse. The only one. The only one in the entire New Testament. That's why they have to go to Psalms 51 to back up their interpretation of 1 John 1, 9. That's why they have to go to the Old Testament and talk about Psalms, Psalm 51 where David was saying, Oh God, blot out my sin and take away my iniquity. David was prophetically yearning for what you have now in Christ. He was saying, the blood of bulls and goats you don't desire, Lord. That's Psalm 51. The blood of bulls and goats you don't desire, that just covers sins. Create in me a new heart. Create in me a willing spirit. Blot out my transgression. Don't just cover it, Lord. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because in the old days, they didn't have regeneration. They didn't have union by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit was not yet given, John says, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Spirit would come and lift, come and lift on those saints. They were not regenerated. They were not in union with God. Nobody could be in Christ until Christ came. They weren't in Christ. They were not in Christ. There was no new creation until he came. It's in the resurrection that the creation came forth, a new creation. So the Spirit actually came, and that's why David prayed like that. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And yet we have preachers preaching to the body of Christ, Psalm 51, to believers, making, number one, believers afraid that the Spirit of God's going to leave them. Number two, that they need to get cleansing again and again and again. Number three, David's yearning for which you already have, created me a willing heart, a new spirit, a new heart has come in Christ. Ezekiel prophesied, the day will come when I will wash you with clean water and I will put a new heart in you and a new spirit. It has come. Spiritual circumcision has taken place. Any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, all things have become new, especially the heart. Out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water out of the new heart. It's awesome. So you can actually pray an Old Testament prayer and put yourself back under the law and see yourself in the flesh and see yourself prior to Christ, what he did, as if Jesus didn't even come. And they have to go to the Old Testament to back up this interpretation of 1 John 1, 9 because it is nowhere else. The Apostle Paul, not once in all of his letters, the Apostle Paul, not once, not once in all of his letters, said to the believer, you need to confess your sins and get cleansed on a daily basis. Not once. Not even once. Whoever wrote Hebrews, probably Paul, but we don't know for sure. Not once. Peter, not once. In fact, Peter says, he who, has, he who is not growing in the fruit of the Spirit has forgotten that he was once purged from his sins. We say, if you're not living a fruitful Christian life, it's probably because, brother, you have unconfessed sin in your life. Peter would say, no, no, no. He is unfruitful in the Spirit because he has forgotten that he was once purged from all his sin. Just the opposite. Just the opposite. He's too sin conscious. That's why he's not bearing fruit. He needs to be Christ conscious. That's the gospel. That's the good news. 
Through the law is the knowledge of sin. But through grace is the knowledge of the gift of righteousness. And that's the strength of the gospel, the power of the gospel that religion doesn't get and religious people don't get. James, John, none of them, except this one verse in 1 John that's been misinterpreted, this one verse. And you even have, you even have uh, uh, preachers will tell you, teachers will tell you that never build a doctrine on one verse. Well, you just did. You know, and that's a, good, that's a good advice. You never build a doctrine on just one verse. I mean, if that's, think about it, saints. Think about it. If that were true, wouldn't, first of all, fellowship with God is all important. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, fellowship with God is everything. I mean, that's why he came, that we might be with us and we with him. If it were true that every time you commit a sin as a believer, you have to confess that sin, name that sin, get it cleansed so you can stay in fellowship with God, that would be written everywhere, everywhere. All the apostles would be reminding the saints, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. It's nowhere, nowhere. In fact, what is said by the apostles is just the opposite. And this is the mind-blowing thing. The apostles taught, you have been released from the law. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. You have been released from under the law, and where there is no law, sin is not imputed. Wow. That's the gospel. That is the power of God. And see, the natural man says, no, you can't just let people go like that. You can't just release them like that because they'll just go crazy. They'll get in their flesh. They'll sin. The secret to God's ways is, first of all, his ways are not our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways, not our ways. So to the natural man, it seems like the right thing to do to have to confess our sins to stay right with God. It, it seems like... <laughs> I sound like my alarm clock this morning. Thanks, thanks, guys. Okay, I'll try to wrap this up. Yeah, let me wrap this up. Um, it seems to the natural mind that's, that's a good thing, you know. But there's a way that seems right to a man, a natural man, and the end thereof is death. God's ways are not our ways. So what's the secret? What's the secret? How, how does releasing people from their sin, releasing them from accountability for their sin, as the scripture says, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account because he's in Christ. What's the secret? How does that help you become more Christ-like? The secret is when you see the mystery of your own death in Christ, the judgment is over, that he has actually brought you through judgment on the cross. As Jesus said when he went to the cross, he goes, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the prince of this world cast out. When you see you've already passed through death, through judgment, the secret of the Lord is revealed to you on the other side of the veil. And that secret is the same Lord who died for you now lives for you. Union has taken place. You cannot grow in the awareness of your union with him, Christ, your life, as long as you see yourself 
in your sins and in need of continual cleansing. And it's exactly what the enemy wants to hide from you. You enter into the rest of God and cease from your own works as God did cease from his. You watch what the spirit of God will do. There will be an opening within you of a revelation of union in Christ my life that will boggle the mind. You'll find yourself walking on water. You'll find yourself living a life of love and patience and peace. And the only explanation for it is that Christ is alive in me. And no flesh can glory in his presence because his way is that awesome. The enemy wants to keep you sin conscious, sin conscious, sin conscious. The scripture says in Hebrews that there was a reminder of sins every day, every year under the old covenant because they were never taken away. They were only covered. Not so, Hebrews says, under the new covenant. There was a reminder of sins under the old covenant because they were covered. But not so under the new covenant. For the new covenant, the word is, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Awesome! Of which all those sacrifices were a picture, a mere picture. So now... There's not a reminder of sins all the time for the believer. There's a reminder of him. We don't remember our sins. We remember him. In fact, Paul said this. He says, this one thing I do, this one thing I do, I forget that which is past. And I move on because I'm righteous in him and because of him. And that's why we have the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine. Not to remind us of our sins, he said, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body which is broken for you for the remission of sin. This is my blood which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. What are we doing? What are we doing? We're taking the covenant meal and acting like it's an old covenant covering. So real quick, let's look at this in one more time and then We'll move to the next one. Uh, like I said, so much could be said about this. But what, he's, what, what John is simply saying here, in verse 7, he says in verse 7, that now because of Christ, we have fellowship with the Father, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. In the Greek, that means the one act of death, the blood. He's not to die often. He died once. In the Greek, it means the one act of death, the blood, continually cleanses, continually has an effectual effect on us so that our sins are never counted against us again by his one act of death, okay? But this is the first mention of sin in his letter. And there were people in the early church that were saying, I don't really have any sin. I don't need a savior. The Gnostics, the Gnostics were saying, no, we have this higher knowledge, this this higher knowledge, this mystery of angels and stuff. We know how to have fellowship with God. We know how, you know, it's not about sin. We don't have any sin. We, we have this higher mystery knowledge of angels, and so that's how we have our access to God. And John is saying, no, you don't. In verse 8, he says, if we say we have no sin, and when he says we there, that's just a figure of speech. Paul used the same figure of speech. We could say that here. We could say, you know, if, if, we, if we don't believe in Jesus, then we, there's no hope. You know, it's just a figure of speech. So he says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about the Gnostics. He's talking about the unbeliever who says we have no sin. We don't need a savior. We have this secret knowledge. That's how we get access to God. He goes, oh, no, 
You deceive yourself. And the truth is not in you. He's not describing a Christian there. John would never say a Christian is deceived and the truth is not in him. Look what else he says. Look at verse 10 after the verse 9. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, he repeats himself. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. We make God a liar because God says we're all sinners and we need a savior. We make him a liar and his word is not in us. That's not a believer. So he's describing a person who is deceived, who has not the truth in them, who is calling God a liar, and who has not the word in him. That's a perfect classic example of an unregenerate person. Now that person, if they will confess their sins, that's who I was at one time without Christ. If I will confess my sin, if I agree with God that I'm a sinner, he is faithful and just. Why faithful and just? Because the price has been paid. It's a promise. He's faithful to honor the promise that you will be forgiven because of what my son did. And he's just because he, the judgment has already fallen on his son. And he will not judge you and I twice. He's already punished his son for me. He's just. He will not punish me again, ever, because he punished his son for me. See that? It's awesome. He punished his son for me. That's why he's just in forgiving my sins. It's just to do that because of what he did. He's faithful and just to cleanse me of all sin, of all unrighteousness, the verse says. All unrighteousness. How often does God cleanse from all unrighteousness? Once. When he does it, he does it all. He does it once. And it's done. Awesome. So he's talking. This is a simple verse to an unbeliever that says, I have no sin. I'm not, a, I, you know, I don't need a savior. It's just a simple verse to an unbeliever that we say every day to people that are not in Christ. And we say, you know, if you, if you just, you know, agree with God that you're a sinner, if you'll see your need for a savior, he's faithful and just, you know, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You can become a believer like me. I was once a sinner and not in Christ. And now I am righteous in Christ. I'm not even a sinner saved by grace anymore. I don't like that phrase at all. You're not, you're not a sinner saved by grace. You're a saint. Paul says you're not a sinner at all. You're a saint. We're not just sinners saved by grace. Like last night we said, we're not just dung covered by snow. We're saints. Paul addressed the believers as saints, the holy ones. Saved by grace. Once a sinner, but now a saint. Awesome. So what, what, about the, what about the believer that sins? What, does John say anything about that? He sure does. The very next sentence, my little children. Now here he's clearly talking to the believer. My little children. My little children. I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. We don't want you to sin. We don't want you to walk after the flesh. We want you to walk in the spirit. We want, we want Christ to be manifested in your life. But if anyone sins, okay, here it is. What do we do? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. In other words, he's done it. Remember that he's done it. Propitiation means that a complete reconciliation has taken place for all sin, 
in, in such a way that it removes even the anger. That's what propitiation means. It means that even wrath, anger, has been removed. Not just atonement, but there's no anger left. There's no anger left. He was angry at his son for us. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. A deep mystery. That's why he cried out from the cross, Eli, Eli, why have you forsaken me? He turned his, his eyes away from his only begotten because he, be, he made him to be our sin. We devalue and diminish the work of Christ when we adopt this false view of 1 John 1, 9 and see ourselves in need of continual cleansing and continual forgiveness and continual um, effort to stay in fellowship with a God who has joined himself to us in union with us. For he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit to live as Christ. Just real quick, here are the notes at the bottom of my Bible here. The notes on 1 John 1, 9. Okay, it says, Confession. One of the most remarkable chapters in the Old Testament is Psalm 51. They go to Psalm 51 to validate this wrong interpretation of 1 John 1, 9 because there is no New Testament verse. Zero. One of the most remarkable chapters in the Old Testament is Psalm 51. This this psalm contains the actual words of confession uttered by King David after his great sins of adultery and murder. This prayer can serve as a pattern to the Christian when he is guilty of sin in his life today. And then he goes down. David begins his prayer by admitting his sin, displays real sorrow over sin, asks God for forgiveness, asks God to restore him. And then it says, in the New Testament, the most important single verse concerning confession is 1 John 1, 9. No, it's not the most important single verse. It is the only single verse that they use. You see how dishonest this is? It's dishonest. It's misleading and it's dishonest. Because this writer is actually saying, there are, oh, there are many other verses, but this is the most important one. Well, where are they and why don't you cite them? And why do you have to go to the Old Testament to cite it? goes here he says in the new testament the most important single verse concerning confession is first john 1 9 in essence john tells us the means of forgiveness and cleansing is the blood of christ while the method of this forgiveness and cleansing is the confession of the christian like david we must admit our sin regret the actions of our sin plead the blood of christ and believe that god has indeed done what he promised namely to cleanse us from the sin from sin and restore us to fellowship and service that is what's taught widely in the world in the body of Christ today and it is heresy it's heresy it's heretical it's heretical and it's it's tearing believers up it's hurting believers that's not what 1 John 1 9 says so real quickly what do you do when you sin as a believer do we just like are we flipping about it are we no 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 when we sin as a believer, first of all, you, you must know that that sin's not being counted against you, number one. 
Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. You're not under law, so sin's not imputed. So there's no, there's no barrier to fellowship with God whatsoever when you sin as a believer. Not one. He doesn't leave you, and you don't leave him. He's right there in the midst of your sin as we sin. In fact, that's where he pulls in closer in a manifest way. He can't get any closer than being in union with you. But in a manifest way, when we are struggling and stumbling, he really moves in with love and grace. Scripture says we have a throne of grace to go to, to find mercy, to find grace, to help in time of need. He comes to us. He comes to us. Like the prodigal son, he's like looking down the road, running to us. He's not letting them, he's not letting him make his, his confession statement. He says, no, 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 I don't want to hear that. Bring the robe. Kill the fatted calf. Bring the ring. No probation. No probation. Probate. Give him the ring. Give him the authority of the Father. It's hard, God's heart. The goodness of God leads men to repentance. The goodness of God leads men to change their mind. So what, we, what do we do? We, we go to him. We run to him. We don't run away. And we run to him without the sense that he's running away from us or turn his back on us. We run to him and we thank him. We thank him. We thank him. You don't have to keep records of all your sins, so make sure you name them all so you can stay in fellowship with him. That's worse than the old covenant. We, we just thank him. Thank you, Lord. You're so good to me. Thank you that you're not counting that against me because of Christ. Teach me how to overcome this flesh. Teach me how to overcome this thing that keeps tripping me up. Where, where, where am I missing it? Where am I de not depending on you in this area? What, what, what fear do I have that's causing me to, to default to the flesh? Teach me, Lord. Teach me. And he will. He'll say, come. Let me show you something. Let me show you something. We thank him. We thank him. That's what the bread and the wine is. It's all about giving thanks, remembering him. So much more can be said, obviously. Okay, next one, real quick. Okay, the next one, since we were talking about the bread and the wine, let's go to that one next. It's commonly taught that the believer needs to examine themselves for sin before eating of the bread, drinking of the wine. Let me turn to the scripture that I'm referring to so you can, you can write it down. Look at first, I think first Corinthians 11 or second, I'm sorry, second Corinthians 11 or first Corinthians. Let's see. Or it could be third Corinthians. <laughs> You know, there actually was a third letter to the Corinthians, and no one has been able to find it because Paul in his first Corinthian letter refers to the first letter that nobody has. So it's probably hidden somewhere in the Vatican. No. It probably really blows everything up. Yeah, it's probably awesome. It's probably like, no, we can't release this letter. And maybe one day it will be released. The first letter to the Corinthians. Oh, my God. Did you hear that? It'd be awesome. That could be a movie. Okay, okay here we go. First Corinthians, yeah. First, I'm sorry. First Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, begin there, and all the way to the end, verse 34. That's First Corinthians 11, 
17 through 34. Okay, in the interest of time, I'm going to just hit the high points. But when you get a chance, go back and read that. Paul is addressing two issues at the Lord's Supper or when the believers got together, together and had a covenant meal. Two issues. First thing he addresses, in fact, he even says, first, I like, well, let me, I got to read this. This is really cool. Verse 17, he goes, he goes, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. People are actually going to church for the worse and not for the better if they're getting bad teaching. Paul says, I don't praise you for getting together as believers. You get together for the worse, not for the better. So it's, it's not just getting together is all God's after. No, he, he wants to get together and people hear truth and be set free. He's not impressed by our evangelistic efforts. Jesus told the Pharisees, you cross land and sea to make one convert and they, be, they become twice the child of hell that you are. Je- that's Jesus' words. He's not impressed by our evangelistic, evangelistic efforts across land and sea to make one convert. What he cares about is what you're telling that one convert. Because they were putting them under law, making them twice the child of hell that the Pharisee was. Judgmental. And condemning, you know. So, anyway. All right, verse 18. All right, see, he says here in verse 18, In the first place, when you come together as, as a church... now. Two things he's going to talk about here. The first thing he talks about is the more serious problem. He talks about how there are heretics among you. If you have the King James Version, you'll see in that passage where the, the phrase heresies is in there, in the King James Version, heresies. Look in the original Greek where it says divisions, in the New American Standard it says divisions. Look at the original Greek. It's the word for heresies or heretics. Heretics. And the King James actually says heretics or heresies. There were unbelievers in their midst. There were unbelievers. They had this agape love feast at Corinth, and people would come, you know, oh, God, this is cool, free food. And there were unbelievers coming to these feasts, and they were passing out the covenant meal at, probably at the end to celebrate the Lord because the believers were doing it because they were doing it out of remembrance of him and fellowship with each other. But the unbelievers were getting a free meal and they were eating of the covenant meal. So Paul says, examine yourself for what? He never says examine yourself for sin. It's not in the passage. He says examine yourself. Same phrase he uses in the second Corinthian letter. Second Corinthian letter. Same phrase. Same people. Same, same writer. He says, chapter 13, in 2 Corinthians, chapter 13, same phrase. He says, examine yourselves, chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Do you not know or recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? The scripture says in this passage in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians that they did not discern the Lord's body is why they were drinking unworthily and eating unworthily. They were not discerning who was in the body, who was in the body of Christ, who was the body, who was, who was in the body, who was not in the body. That's why he said, examine yourself. Examine yourself, you Corinthians that are gathering here. Is Christ in you? Are you a believer? If you are, then eat and drink 
Because that covenant meal is for you. The only way you can eat and drink unworthily a covenant meal that is announcing to you that your sins are not being held against you. I mean, that's what the meal is all about. I mean, the meal, it's, think how twisted this is. We're so twisted in our thinking in the church. We, we're saying examine yourself for sin so that you don't get, you know, judgment on you by eating the bread and the wine. But what are we eating the bread and wine for? We're eating the bread and wine for to remember him that judgment has passed us over. The Passover. Because of his death, judgment has passed us over. We're remembering him. Because our sin is no longer being remembered. In this new covenant, I'll remember your sin no more. And I'll be merciful to all your iniquities. That's what the covenant meal is all about. It's so twisted. The enemy has taken the covenant meal, a powerful, powerful meal that Jesus left us with to remind us that his, that his work has removed our sin from us. And that we do this in remembrance of him. And we do show the Lord's death until he comes again. And the enemy has taken that meal and turned it and twisted it into this evil, sin-conscious, sin-focused, dreary, dreadful event. And we just let it happen. Don't let it happen anymore. He died that we might eat that bread, drink that wine, and remember him and not our sins. That's the covenant language. I'll remember their sins no more. Do this in remembrance of me. Don't let the devil, don't let Satan twist that covenant meal. So what was happening is that they were actually, the unbelievers taking of the covenant meal were drinking judgment to themselves because the work of Christ actually is a pronouncement of our sin, that we deserve judgment. So the only way that work of Christ is life to you and I is if you receive it. If you don't receive it, it's death to you. For we are an aroma of life unto life and death unto death, life to those who are in Christ and death to those who are not in Christ. You see? The only way you can eat and drink of the cup and eat of the bread and drink of the cup unworthily is if you do it as an unbeliever. That's why Paul says, examine yourself. And if you're in Christ, Christ is in you. If you're a believer, then eat, 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 brother. Eat, drink, sister. Remember him and rejoice. Isn't that awesome? Okay, third thing. Let's go to, real quick to Ananias and Sapphira. Same kind of concept. You might think, why does God, you know, why does God let judgment fall on these unbelievers that, that are eating of the covenant meal? Well, it doesn't happen all the time, but God allows that. In that very chapter, chapter 11, 1 Corinthians, it says God allows that as a type of almost like a chastisement on the unbeliever that they would not be condemned with the world. He couldn't, he couldn't possibly be talking about a believer there. He allowed that to happen to those unbelievers that they might wake up and realize this is real. This is really real. We can't just come in here and get free food and partake of this covenant mystical meal with this mystical spiritual body of believers and expect nothing's going to happen because this is real. And it caused the unbelievers to take, sit up and take notice like, wow, I want to be a part of this. That they might not be condemned with the world. In the chapter. Ananias and Sapphira, same thing. 
Let's look at that real quick. Let's look at Acts. Acts chapter 8, I believe. Or 5. Acts 5. Is this helping? Cool. Awesome. Acts chapter 5. You know, I know I know I get kind of passionate sometimes about this, but I'm telling you, if Paul was here, we'd be toast. <laughs> he wouldn't put up with this kind of bad teaching. He wouldn't be to- he wouldn't be mad at you. He'd be mad at some of these teachers. The church he would be listen, Galatians was a letter written in fire. Galatians, he was, he was mad. I am amazed that you're so soon removed from the gospel of grace. He goes, who's teaching, who's teaching you this stuff, this law? But who's putting you back under the law? Galatians, he's talking about, who's doing this? He goes, I, I pray that they would, would, would be judged. I pray that they would be judged. I tell you, I, I, be the, I pray they'd be condemned. I'll say it again. I pray they'd be condemned. He said it twice. He's so mad. He's so, because he's fighting for the bride. He's fighting for the church. He's fighting for her that he died for, and he was zealous to keep it pure from legalism and law and wrong thinking. Paul was so cool, he even said this. He said in the Galatian letter, he said, if even an angel from heaven comes and preaches to you a different gospel than what I preach to you, let him be accursed. Then Paul said this. He says, and if I change what I preached to you in the beginning, don't listen to me. That's pretty cool because he knew he heard from Christ. He's basically saying, if the devil gets to me and I start changing my message, don't listen to me. Listen to what I first said to you. That's awesome. That's Galatians. Galatians is written in fire. It's fire. I travail in birth again as one who is giving birth until Christ is formed in you to get you free from law. Stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has set you free. Stand fast in that liberty. Let no man put you in bondage to law again. Or the thinking behind the law. Of a need for continual forgiveness of your sins. That is what's behind the law. A continual forgiveness. Continual covering. Of which the law could never do. For the law is not for the righteous. Paul says. Anyway. So that's. <laughs> so in other words. It's okay to get. It's okay to get fired up about this. That's, that's the point I was trying to make. Okay. Okay. X. Acts chapter 5. Okay, here we go. Okay, this has been used to beat believers over the head for years that, you know, you better behave yourself because if you, if you don't behave yourself, if you, if you lie to God, it'll strike you dead. God will strike you dead. Well, that's an example of how the enemy has taken a verse and put it in your mind and becomes a stronghold. And when you hear the glorious gospel... That judgment has passed you by because of Christ. As Jesus said, he who believes on me shall not come into judgment, but has already passed from death and into life. That word which brings joy to the heart is quenched when you hear this preacher say, don't forget to ananize the fire. Better bring those tithes and offerings in the church. But not lie to God about money. God's serious about money. 
You'll strike you dead. <laughs> Makes me want to throw the Bible at him. That's going on all over the place. And said in just that dialect. No. But it is. It's, it's, it's rapid. Okay. Chapter 5. Book of Acts. When you get a chance, read this chapter. I can prove to you from the, from the scripture that Ananias and Sapphira were unbelievers. They weren't believers. They weren't in Christ. Another example of how God is zealous for his church, and sometimes the hammer will fall on an unbeliever who's trying to get in in a way that you can't get in. You can't just show up at the agape feast and partake of the covenant meal and get free food and expect to be in. Sometimes the lion roars. And you can't get in because you sell your property and give the apostles some money. You can't get in. The only currency that God recognizes is faith. Believe. Doesn't need our money. But they were trying to get in because they saw a good thing happening, the scripture says. Read that chapter. It's awesome. Every place Luke, when he writes the book of Acts, every place that Luke writes about a believer, he says in the book of Acts, a certain disciple, a certain disciple, a certain disciple, only with Ananias and Sapphira does he say, and a certain man, or a man, a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. Didn't call him a disciple. That's just one clue. You see, the passage does not come out and say they were believers or they were unbelievers. It doesn't say either way. So you have to look at the passage and see what, what the writer's saying. Another clue. Scripture says that when they were struck dead before Peter, it said that the rest of the group dared not try to join the body of believers. The rest of the group, right there in the chapter. What is that? The rest of the group are the unbelievers that were seeing a good thing going on. And Ananias and Sapphira, they moved on out and said, we're going to try this. This is, you know, this nice little social security system here, man. They're all sharing their stuff. Taking care of, they'll take care of us, we'll take care of them, you know, but good deal. Here's the rest of the group watching, seeing how it goes with Ananias and Sapphira. Didn't go too good. <laughs> and the next verse says, and the rest of them dared not try to join the church. Dared not try to do it. What is that? Clear that Ananias and Sapphira were coming from an outside group trying to get into the church by means of money, a political way of getting in, as opposed to just simple faith. And there are other clues in here. Like Peter, Peter, says, um, Peter says to them, why has Satan filled your heart? Same phrase used of Judas. Satan filled your heart. No believer is ever referred to as one whom Satan has filled their heart. It's impossible. It's impossible. If you're joined to Christ, the evil one touches you not. You cannot have your heart filled with Satan if you're joined to Christ. So Peter's very words reveals who they really were. Anyway, take a look at that and see 
and realize Ananias and Sapphira were not believers. Yes, they experienced a judgment, but it was a judgment because they were trying to move in, and at the early inception of the church, God was zealous to keep it pure, to keep, to keep that little flock protected. It also sent a signal out to the unbelievers that this is serious, this is real, but it also, the, the scripture also says that it comforted, this actual act comforted the believers because they saw, wow, Papa's looking out for us. Papa's looking out for us. Isn't that awesome? So, That's three. All right, four. Peter. Peter says, judgment must begin at the house of God. Let's look at that real quick. Is this going on too long? Okay. I'll try to go a little bit faster. Try the operative word. There. Okay, first Peter. Let's go. Uh, yeah, first Peter... Uh, chapter 4, please. First Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, and let's go with, um, well, let's go with the, the very scripture that is used, and we'll back up and look at the context, but verse 17. First Peter chapter 4, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty, verse 18, if it is with difficulty or with tri or trial or tribulation that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Verse 17 and 18. Okay. The phrase, judgment begins at the house of God, has been used by preachers and teachers to say, the same thinking that, you know, you got to be careful. Yeah, there's grace, but there's also, you know, God's holy. And I hate that. I hate that comparison because, you know, as if grace is not holy. Or you hear some preachers say, you know, yeah, God is, God is love, but he's also holy. Like love is not part of, the, of his holiness. Holy just means other, other, he's other, he's other, other, other. The angels are crying, other, other, other. Holy is an all-encompassing word for God. It's an all-encompassing word for God. You can put love in there. He's, his love is other. It's not like man's love. His faithfulness is other. It's not like man's faithfulness. He's other, other, other. He's not of this world. He's not of the creation. He's the creator. He's not of the creation. He's other, other. Holy, holy, holy are you God. Oh, other, other. And he has made you holy. That's what's so awesome about it. We are now other, other, other in him. And no longer from below, but from above. We are from him. We are from him now. We are other. We are holy. Isn't that awesome? Next time you sing that song, uh, any song that talks about holy, 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 you think about that word other, because that's what it really means. It's the all-encompassing word. That's why the angels sing it continually in heaven. And they're not picking out one characteristic of God, like love, 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 faithfulness, faithfulness. Oh, holy is another, another characteristic of God. No, holy is an all-encompassing. He is other. He is not like man. He's not like anything. The creation only gives a, a dim reflection of who he is. He's other. And he has made you other with him. Isn't that awesome? It's making you smile, isn't it? Isn't it cool? That's the one, most, most wonderful word that religion has, has made it a horrible word and made you like dreadful. Oh, he's holy. 
I can't approach him. No, 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 no. We go boldly to a throne of grace, to the holy, into the holy of holies, to the other of others, to find mercy, not judgment, to find grace to help in time of need. You have a need? You can go to the holy of holies to find grace to help in time of need. Awesome. That's your God. That is your God. That's awesome. That's when somebody's supposed to shout. Oh, man. So anyway, so. All right, just real briefly, look at, look at this. Let me ask you something. I'm going to read this in context. And saints, that's a, I know that sounds so simple, but these verses, if you re, notice we're reading the context all around it. It's one of the simplest things to do, to read the context of what's being written. It really is huge uh, to see the meaning of the verse by reading the context as we rely on the Spirit to open our eyes. Look at this context. You tell me if he's describing, if Peter's describing some Christians that need to get their act together. Because, you know, the verse, judgment begins at the house of God. And that's how it's taught. You better get your act together. You better, beha- better start behaving because judgment is coming. And it begins at the house of God. Well, let's see. Let's, see. let's read this and see if Peter's talking to a bunch of believers that are really messing up and they need to get their act together. Let's see what Peter says. Let's start with verse 12. Let's look at the context. Beloved, just the word beloved is awesome. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. By no means, and this is the little footnote. He kind of goes off this little footnote. He goes, he goes by no means, let, let, let not any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But in that name, let him glorify God. You see what he's saying? He had this little footnote that's, you know, just to make, make himself clear. He goes, you know, I'm, you know, if you're suffering because you're, you broke the law, that's something different. I'm not talking about that. But, but if you're, he goes right back to what he's talking about. But if you're suffering, this fiery ordeal, this suffering as a Christian, this, uh, this thing that you're being rejected and reviled for the name of Christ, he says rejoice over that because that's a sign. It's a sign that the blessing of Christ rests upon you. He's not describing a bunch of believers that need to get their act together. He's actually saying, you are blessed. The blessing of Christ rests upon you. You're actually being rejected by this world. You're suffering for Christ. You are in going through this trial, this tribulation, because you belong to Him. He's encouraging them to hang in there and not be afraid of this as some strange thing because this is what happens when you don't belong to the world. It's anything but a bunch of believers that need to get their act together. They're like at the height of witnessing and suffering for Christ. And they're called those who have the blessing of Christ resting upon them. So what is this judgment begins in the house of God? Why would he say that? It's a reference to Ezekiel. Peter, being a good Jew, is quoting Ezekiel. It's a quote from the Old Testament. Let's go back and look at Ezekiel real quick. Ezekiel. It comes from the book of Ezekiel. Judgment must begin at the house of God. 
What is that all about? Uh, let's see, I think it's Ezekiel. Oh, here we go. Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9. It was a, this was a time in Israel's history where judgment was coming on Israel because of their sin. And God said, before judgment falls on Israel for their sin, I want you to go out and mark, put a mark on those who are mine, those who are weeping for the sin of Israel, those who are trying to do what's right. And... Um, and finding themselves being rejected and reviled for trying to follow God. So he says, go first, first. Right there in Ezekiel 9, chapter 9, verse 4 through 7. Let's look at that, verse 4. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others, he said, in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike, but do not let your eye have pity, do not spare. Utterly old men, young men, maidens, children, women, it's horrible judgment. Do not touch. But he says, do not touch any man on whom is the mark, and you shall start from my sanctuary. Judgment begins at the house of God. Start from my sanctuary. Do not touch anyone with the mark. What is Peter saying? He's taking Ezekiel in light of the new covenant and what's happening to the believers, he's saying to the believers, judgment is coming to this world. The second part of the Ezekiel prophecy where it says, now go out and slay. Judgment is coming. But God is putting a mark on his people. Now, judgment begins at the house of God. The mark that is being placed on God's people, which signifies the beginning of judgment, is you are getting a cross of rejection. Like the Christ, like the Lord, you're taking up your cross as he did, rejected by this world. The mark that Peter's talking about is the suffering that those believers are going through being reviled for the name of Christ. He was encouraging them. He goes, judgment is coming to this world. And if, and if we, if we, the righteous, are going through this kind of tribulation, what do you think is waiting for the godless man when judgment falls? That's what he's saying. Do you see that? Do you really see that? you really see that? Peter is telling the believer, the believers, even as in Ezekiel's day, God first put a mark on his people before judgment fell. In the same way, the mark is being put again on the people of God. That mark is the mark of suffering or rejection because of Christ. You bear his mark. It is the cross. And that's a good thing because it means you're not going to go to judgment. That means judgment for the world that has rejected him. And it begins at the house of God. By the house of God being marked by rejection. That's the beginning of judgment. Isn't that awesome? 
So you see, what Peter is actually saying here is incredible encouragement to these suffering believers that, okay, Peter, I see what you're saying. Okay, though we shouldn't feel like this is some strange thing happening to us. We should actually have pity on this world that is reviling us in the name of Christ because this is a, sim- a signal and a sign of the beginning of judgment for the world. Beginning now. It's begun. It's begun by the rejection of God's own people. Isn't that cool? That's what that is saying. That's what Peter is saying. Okay, and the last thing, the fifth thing was about the law, how we're not under the law. The last thing, um, look at look at Second Corinthians real quick, if you would. It's been commonly taught and still is commonly taught that we are... Uh, not under the sacrificial laws, but we are still under the Ten Commandments, the moral law. And let me just say a few words about that. First of all, you can't, you can't cut up the covenant, the old covenant, and say, well, we're not under the, the temple, priesthood, sacrifices, law, but we are under the Ten Commandments. It's, you can't slice it up and take what you want and give what, you know, and say, oh, I'm, not, I'm not in that, but I'm, I'm under this. The covenant came as one covenant. From Sinai. It came from Sinai. It starts with the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. And then it goes to the other laws about the priesthood, the temple, the sacrifices, and other laws, of course, about community living and civil law and so forth. But it came all as one package from Sinai. Paul says, we, or the writer of the Hebrews says, we have not come to that mountain. We have not come to Sinai, which includes the Ten Commandments. We have not come to that covenant. Where Moses quaked and was fearful. We have come to Mount Zion. We have come to the heavenly mountain. We have come to the spirits of justified men made perfect. The angels, the Lord himself, a mediator of a new covenant. It's awesome. So let's see what Paul says about this. Does Paul really say that we're free from the Ten Commandments? Let's see. And then what does that really mean? Okay, I might be able to believe that we're free from the Ten Commandments, but what does that mean? Does that mean I can just go commit adultery, go steal? We'll talk about that, too. Okay, here we go. Oh, yeah. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And there's so much that can be said about, you know, not being under law and being under grace, but just hit a few high points. Chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's start at verse 6. God who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, How shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in Moses' day, in this case, has no glory on account of the glory that surpasses it. Did you catch that? He clearly referred to the tablets of stone. Letters engraved on stone. The only thing that was written in stone in the Old Covenant were the Ten Commandments. That's it. 
The only thing. Everything else was written on leather. Parchment. The only thing on the tablets of stone were the Ten Commandments. And Paul calls the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone, he calls them the ministry of death. He calls them the ministry of condemnation. He calls it a glory that has passed and has no glory as you, as you compare it to the new covenant and its glory. For the law ministered to you and I death and condemnation, but the new covenant of the Spirit ministers righteousness as a gift. Awesome. Awesome. The Ten Commandments were the only thing written on tablets of stone. The whole thing is gone. Gone. God does not recognize the covenant of law. He does not recognize it. The veil of the temple was rent. A new covenant has come. Paul says in Galatians that the law was added. That the real covenant is the one that was cut with Abraham. 400 and something years before there was a law. Before the law was given. 400 and something years before the law was given. A covenant was cut with Abraham. A picture of the covenant with Christ. Paul takes a Galatian letter and says the law was added. It had a beginning and had an end. The beginning of the covenant of law was on Sinai when God brought the law to Moses and he brought it down to the mountain. From the mountain. And the law ended when Jesus died on the cross and the veil of the temple was rent in two from top to bottom. God rent that temple. God rent that veil and said it's over. You're no longer under law for I have given you righteousness by faith. By grace, through faith, we stand in this righteousness. And you start saying these things and people in the natural, they start thinking, well, that means, does that mean we can just live any way we want to live and we can just do whatever we want to do? And what it means is that you're not under a law because if you're under a law, sin is imputed. So if you commit sin under law, that's called transgression. And where there is no law, there's no transgression. So sin imputed is transgression. And transgression only comes when you're under law. So God, in his great wisdom, figured out a way to get us out from under law so that sin would not be imputed against us ever again. In Hebrews, he says, I found fault with that covenant because I had to find fault with my people. Therefore, I did away with that covenant so I can never find fault with my people again. Awesome. That's God. He's, he was always almost mad at the law in a way. He was like, I found fault with that covenant because I had to find fault with my people because of it. And I, I'm, I'm going to put that covenant out of the way. And a new covenant that I, I can no longer find I, any fault with my people. For I'll be merciful to all their iniquities. But it cost him his son's life. He drank the cup. That made it possible. It's awesome. So what happens though. If we're not under law. And therefore we cannot be a transgressor. As Paul said. Is Christ the minister of sin? If I sin in the flesh. Is, that, is Christ doing that? Is the gospel of grace producing sin? Is Christ the minister of sin? He goes God forbid. God's, God's not the minister of sin. But I don't do this. Paul said in Galatians. I do not go back. And build back the law. And make myself a transgressor. Because I'm not under law. And therefore not a transgressor, even though I just sinned. You see it? I do not go back under the law and make myself a transgressor when God has said, I am not a transgressor. That is awesome. 
That's awesome. Galatians is rich. Galatians is rich. So what are we talking about? What are we saying? We're saying we can, we can live any way we want to live because we're not under the Ten Commandments? No. We no longer serve him, the scripture says, after the oldness of the letter. We no longer serve him after the oldness of the letter, for through the law is the strength of sin itself, the scripture says. We serve him in the newness of the Spirit, Romans 7, in the newness of the Spirit. And as we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And the love of God, which is shed abroad in our hearts, will manifest. The love of God. For there is one thing that fulfills all law, Paul said. All. The law was going after. All. One thing. The love of God. It fulfills everything. Paul says, if there be any commandment, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. If there be any other commandment, he says in Romans, it is fulfilled in this. Love. Receive that love from God. Not that we first loved him, but he first loved us. And let that love flow. No longer see yourself under law. The law is a poor, poor, poor standard anyway. It's a very low standard. I mean the law says just you know, law says just don't just don't kill anybody. But the love of God says give your life for somebody. The law says, just don't steal anything. But the love of God wants you to have a job so you have extra money to give to somebody. The love of God. I'm amazed how believers think the law is all this. That it's all that. The law is not all that. It's a low, low standard. The love of Christ. As if the law is some safety net. No, it's the strength of sin. The law is the strength of sin. It's not a safety net for the believer to keep him checked. No, it actually promotes sin. It stimulates the flesh, Romans 7 says. It's awesome what God has done. And I get frustrated, I guess, with teachers that are putting the body of Christ under law. But this is changing. This is not going away. This is not going away. Joseph Prince is saying this. Clark Witten is saying this. I'm saying this. Others are saying this. Steve McVeigh is saying this. Bob George is saying this. Who, who's who's that, that brother that wrote the Naked Gospel? Bill Gilliam. Bill Gilliam is saying this, but he didn't write the Naked Gospel. Who was that? Great book if you want to check it out. Google it, the Naked Gospel. Great guy out of Texas. He's saying this. Andrew Womack, Andrew Womack is saying this. Andrew Womack, Colorado. I'm telling you, it's from the grassroots up. Even Joel Osteen has got the spirit of grace in his words and his message. A lot of the religious people don't like Joel Osteen. No, he's right on. He's right on. Joel Osteen is right on. He's talking about the new creation. He's talking about grace. He's talking about how God loves you, how God wants you to succeed. He's, it's, it's God's heart. The voice is getting louder and louder and louder. And what's going to happen is fireworks. We're getting marked. Yeah, we're going to get marked. The marks are going to show. We're going to be marked because judgment begins at the house of God. Andrew Farley. Andrew Farley, thank you. Andrew Farley. 
awesome writer. He's got another book coming out. He wrote The Naked Gospel. Really cool. And there are others. I can't think of right now, but there are others. You know, Max Licato, he's got the spirit of grace and all that he writes about the heart of the Father, the heart of God. You know, he's not, Max Licato is not so much a, a doctrinal kind of scriptural kind of writer. I just love his spirit of grace that he writes his books and I love Max Licato. But there are those who are actually taking scriptures and saying what we did today. This is what, I love what Jesus said. Jesus said, you've heard it said this, but I say to you this. That's what we're doing. You've heard that 1 John 1, 9 means this, but I say to you by the authority of the Spirit of God and the Word of God that it says this. We speak with authority. We speak with com- confidence. We, th- we speak with authority because it's Christ who's speaking these words and it's life and it's peace. Awesome. I'm telling you, and God needs you and I to speak. Be bold. This is, you know, this, this church is, is a very special, special church. And those who are watching by internet, God's calling. He wants you to be bold in your own circle of friends, in your own circle of influence, and speak and write. Speak and write. As the voices get louder and louder, Christ, we boast in Christ, in Christ alone. We boast in him and his work. We're no longer a people sin conscious. We're not focused on sin. Our minds are set on things above. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We set our minds on things above. We're not looking for sin in the flesh. You look for sin in your flesh, you'll surely find it. Paul says, Paul says, no good thing dwells in my flesh. That never was God's dynamic of change. Never was. In the very beginning, God said, who told you you were naked, Adam? Who told you you were naked, Eve? Who told you you were naked? It's not my way, Adam. It's not my way, Eve. In the very beginning, God was showing that the law, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is a picture of the law, for through the law is the knowledge of sin, and through the law is the knowledge of good. That tree is a picture of the law. God says, don't eat of it. It'll kill you. The ministry of death, condemnation. It makes you look at yourself, focus on yourself. Who told you you were naked? Who told you you were naked? They walked naked before God, without shame and without fear. Beautiful tree of life waiting for them to eat, but they didn't. And now the tree of life has returned in Christ. The bread of life. First mention of shame and fear was in the garden when they, when they ate of the law. They saw their nakedness. We've, Adam, where are you? Adam, Adam, where are you? I, I heard your voice and I, I was afraid of you and I hid myself because I was ashamed. Because I am naked. There it is. Story of the human race. Running from God, shame, seeing themselves, anything but in union with him. He loved to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. But that's back in Christ. He has prepared a place for us. 
in himself, that where he is, we may be also. He in me and I in him. John 17, he says, Father, I pray that, that as I am in you, Father, and you are in me, I pray that they would be in me and I in them. One, sin no longer the issue. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold a new covenant. I remember your sins no more. And though we all stumble in many ways, James says we all stumble in many ways as we're learning to live by another life within, we go boldly to a throne of grace, find help and mercy in time of need. Growing from faith to faith, from glory to glory, manifesting what is already within. You're not becoming more and more righteous or more and more holy. What's happening is a gradual manifestation of what already is by the renewal of the mind. When you put off this body, you'll be absent from the body, present with him, because you are perfect now. You are created righteous, not just imputed, not just imputed righteous. That's what the old covenant saints had. But he has imparted righteousness to you by an act of resurrection and creation. You have been made a partaker of the divine nature through Christ. That's who you are. Jacob, you are Israel. You are Israel, Jacob. A prince with God and with men. Son of the living God. Daughter of the living God. A bride in whom he says, I see no spot, I see no wrinkle, or any such thing. Come, they run with me, my bride. I see no fault. I see nothing but my handiwork. You have been created new in me. Come. I am with you. You are with me. That's my heart. To be with you. Fear not, I have done it, the Lord said. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you, Lord. Lord Jesus. Lord, thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to what the Scriptures are really saying. As you opened the minds of the disciples, that they might understand the scriptures. I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would open our minds, that we might understand the scriptures. Father, thank you for this powerful gift to open our minds to the real meaning of the scriptures. Replace wrong thinking and release in our minds the truth behind the words God, and like a powerful, 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 powerful work, it will renew our minds, and it will automatically pull down those thoughts and strongholds and those things that exalt itself against the true knowledge of God, replacing it with truth and peace. For your words are spirit and they're life. 
Father, you said at the end of days that there would be great understanding, that we would understand. In the latter days, that great understanding would come. That day is here. Help us see. Open the eyes of the blind again. Heal the broken heart. Release the captive. Proclaim your new world of grace and favor. The kingdom is here in the spirit. It has been for 2,000 years. Be still and see the salvation of God, Yeshua, salvation of God. Be still and see. presence, Father, is tangible. Your world has filled this room. Your life, your love has filled this room. Fills our hearts. You have loved us with an everlasting love. And with loving kindness, you have drawn to yourself. Behold, I bring you on eagle's wings unto myself. It is finished. Rejoice. And again I say, rejoice. Does the last song that we sang mean a little bit more to you? The splendor of the king? Yes. Clothed in majesty. Beginning in the end. Beginning in the end. Thank you, James. Um, wow. Awesome. I'm so glad you came out today and uh, to spent some time with us and it's just such an awesome privilege to have James around. I tried to, in writing and through videos and through verbiage, to try to explain to you what it's like to be in the ministry where James is, and I, and I can't find the right words, and I can't say it, I can't show you enough little snippets of things. Uh, but now that you've been here, I promise you, you'll never be the same. You'll never be the same. 
this is a special anointing upon a, a man like I've never seen before. And I, I, I know a lot of great preachers and a lot of great teachers, and uh, uh, but I've never experienced, never experienced what I experienced when I'm in this guy's uh, ministry. So uh, I'm so glad you came and got to be a part of it. I hope the Lord will uh, open the doors. Those of you uh, who don't have a church home, uh, uh, or if you think you can sneak away from your church home, I hate to say that, but uh, <laughs> hey, listen, it's not every day, but you took us seven years of getting back here. Uh, so uh, if you can, uh, sneak in and hear us. If you can't, uh, remember that it will be on the Internet. Uh, if you want to get a, a video or a CD, there's a list back there. You can sign up for it. If you just want one copy, you might be able to get it today if you'll hang around for a little while. Because the guys in the media room will try to get that for you. Remember that there's no charge for anything. But there is a love offering basket in the rear of the auditorium. So if you'd like to give uh, to James, so I'm sure he'd appreciate it. I'm going to ask you to give James a gift. Now, he's worked real hard last night when he finally got here. <laughs> and, he's real, and I know something that's on his heart that he, loves, that he really loves. He loves the gospel, but he also has something else he loves. He loves LSU football. <laughs> If he wants to go see Auburn lose today, <laughs> and I know you want to grab him and hold on to him and hug him and talk to him and, and, and just, you know, peel some more truth off his mind, but let's give him a gift. Let, let's let he and George uh, just as quickly as they can go out there and jump in the car. Pray for him that they'll not only get there, they'll get a parking place up close, all right, and that they'll be there for the kickoff. Does that sound like a good That's gift awesome. for him? Would you like that? Would you like that? That's a gift for you, all right? So uh, let's all stand, and uh, we're going to be dismissed. And uh, James is going to go see the football game, and he'll be back here tomorrow. And he'll uh, we'll turn up the volume in case he's a little hoarse to make sure we can hear him. Okay, Father, thank you for uh, James Barron. Thank you for Cindy. Thank you for his boys. Uh, thank you that this uh, church uh, allowed him to come here to be with us. I know that uh, there are people in Orlando this morning uh, who just saying, "Gee, I wish James was here." Well, we got him, all right? So we thank you for it. Uh, Lord, let that anointing that's been upon him spill over onto us. Those of us who are leaders and teachers, uh, uh, wherever we are in our own individual ministries, in our families, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, let us bring this message of grace so that others can be set free. Yes. For husbands, for wives, for children, for moms, dads, sisters, brothers, grandchildren, let us bring the truth of this message that they might see the glory of the King. Yes. Father, we love you. We rejoice in you. Bless this day as only you can. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You are, you are dismissed in the name of the Lord. Amen. Love you, Father.